Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. So what is this saved savior trope in the Bible all about? Have you noticed it? Maybe not the term saved savior since I made it up yesterday, but have you noticed that a lot of the most important savior types in the Bible have to get saved themselves first? It's so common that our Exodus reading today begins with a one-sentence reset so the pattern can start over. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Remember Joseph, the favorite boy of Jacob with the pretty coats and the self-serving dream interpretations. His jealous brothers threw him into a pit to die, but he was saved so they could be, so when they decided to sell him to a passing band of Midianites instead, who sold him to an Egyptian named Potiphar, which is how Jacob's sons came to be living in a land, one of Jacob's sons came to be living in a land with plenty of grain when famine hit that would have done in the family and the nation they were to become. Joseph, the saved savior. But he's not the archetypal one, is he? That would be Moses, because because once the regime changed in Egypt, the Israelites had no political clout. The new king decided that these foreigners were not hard-working, productive members of society, but threats and menaces. But somehow the more they were oppressed, the more they procreated. Robert Alter translates the sentence just prior to today's reading this way, and the sons of Israel were fruitful and swarmed and multiplied and grew very vast, and the land was filled with them. Isn't that terrific? Alter says the Hebrew verb for swarm is the same one attached to the creeping things in the creation story. So there are swarms of these Israelites in Egypt, and the more you try to exterminate them, the more they reproduce, It's less an image of divine intervention than one of the irrepressible fruitfulness of creation which is alive in these enslaved Hebrew people. But from the Egyptian perspective, it's just a frustrating exercise in pest control. What Pharaoh's extermination plan is how little Moses ends up in that basket in the Nile. There's another fine little detail I can't let pass. That little wicker basket is called a teva an ark. It's the same word used to describe the big gopher wood boat that Noah was, that's right, saved in so the human race and all the creatures of the earth could be saved as well. While we're at it, later on in the Christian Bible, remember there's an insecure king named Herod who will hear of Jesus' birth and issue a very Pharaoh-like decree that all children under two have to be killed Fortunately, Joseph, Jesus' is thought to be father, not the technicolor dream coat guy, Joseph was warmed of all this in a dream, so he and Mary take their child to where? Egypt. Jesus, the savingest savior of them all, first goes down to Egypt to be saved himself. This is a rather swarming attempt to provide a sense of the way Scripture echoes and recalls and reimagines itself over and over again. For people who thought they could dismiss the Bible, 
if they showed anything in it that was less than literally true, these add up to a bunch of impossible coincidences. But what they suggest to me are sacred stories that share in a deep and consistent intuition about the way things are. So maybe there's a deeper truth in the idea of this saved savior that's worth attending to, no matter what era or country or religion you live out your life within. Yesterday, Ardell and I were riding our bikes on the green line, and I told her what story I was planning to preach on and mentioned my saved savior idea. Without missing a pedal stroke, she said, so are you going to talk about nice white parents? Now, some of you may have noticed that I like to explore biblical stories with other stories. The first half of this sermon was a way of saying the Bible kind of does this too. But I like to choose quirky story anecdotes that don't seem directly relevant, figuring out the possible connections, how I hold the attention of all 11 of you who haven't nodded off by minute four. But Ardell's suggestion made me squirm because it wasn't just a curious diversion. Nice White Parents is actually an unsaved savior story, I think. One I think many of us, one that I at least, need to learn how to hear. We listened to this podcast as we drove back to Memphis on Thursday. Its, its creator is a mother named Hannah who's looking for a middle school in Brooklyn for her child. New York has one of the most segregated school systems in the country, which means intense competition for seats in the highest performing schools and a lot of anxious shopping by parents of children who didn't quite get one. Well, while school shopping, Hannah meets a good-hearted, non-profit fundraiser-by-day dad named Rob, who did something remarkable. He asked the principal at a lower-performing school called the School for International Studies, or SIS, if she would consider adding a French immersion program. He then went to a group of his friends and said, hey, if we stick together, SIS will add a French program. And they did. Word spread that SIS was suddenly hot, and enrollment tripled that year. Now, something Hannah had noticed when she toured neighborhood schools was that nearly 100% of the parents on those tours were white, while about 90% or so of the students in their desks were black and brown. So when enrollment went from 30 to over 100 in a single year, the demographics of SIS changed drastically as well. It got way, way whiter. Rob immediately went to work raising money for the French program. To give you a sense of the worlds that were colliding here, Rob had raised, I kid you not, $800,000 for his kids' elementary school the year before. The SIS PTA had raised $2,000. The plot unfolds toward a big fundraising event. Imee, the PTA president, gets her feathers a little ruffled when Rob starts raising money without consulting her group. But she admits her frustrations and tries to be supportive. She asked for better communication. And if there were to be a big fundraising event, she insisted that it be, one, held at the school, and two, completely free for everybody, a community event. All perfectly agreeable to dear Rob. And I say dear because I have no, I, I have no doubt I would absolutely love Rob if I met him at the farmer's market some Saturday. I really would. There's plenty more tension to fuel the plot, even before the actual fundraiser happened, which, 
Spoiler alert, did not end up being a community event held at the school after all. It was at the palatial French embassy on Manhattan's Upper East Side, 45 minutes away. And it couldn't be free because, well, the embassy sent out 22,000 invitations, and that's a lot of wine and cheese to give away for a poor Brooklyn school they've never heard of. Imi and her husband went anyway, anyway, God bless them. They worked a raffle table, cheerfully telling Manhattanite friends of the French embassy about their child's middle school. One was a talkative woman named Barbara, who was pleased to learn they were parents, and then held forth on how learning another language opens up the world for a person. Coming up for air briefly, she turns to our narrator, Hannah, and says, and what's your name? Hannah. Anna. I was just telling Anna, when I go to Paris, which I do every year, Cool, Imi interjects, hoping to sell her a raffle ticket for airfare, I think. It is cool, and it's cooler because I can speak the language. You have entree into their society. Not totally. One will never have total entree, but you can interact with your neighbors. You can interact in a restaurant, at the dry cleaner, and they so appreciate an American who can speak French. On Barbara rambles until our cringe muscles are about to give out. Barbara with the apartment in Paris, that feels just like her place in Gramercy Park, explains carefully to Imi, the bilingual Puerto Rican woman in front of her, that being bilingual makes a person sophisticated and congratulates her on wanting her child to learn French, which she doesn't, of course. Imi narrates Hannah was exceedingly polite. Barbara, you may know, is the kind of real-life caricature podcast producers dream of which is no help if she lets the rest of us off the hook. What felt like the real punch of truth to the gut for Ardell and me, nice white parents that we are, was that these stories are supposed to end happily when the children involved see through the foibles of all us grown-ups. But three sixth-grade boys, still sweaty from soccer, talked to Hannah one day in the library, telling her innocently how bad the school must have been before they arrived, how poor the kids' attention probably was, and how little they must have learned, even though none of the boys were actually at SIS at the time. But their class is better, learning faster. The school improved when they arrived. With the beautiful candor of an 11-year-old, one says, it's going to be one of the top choices. Already in Brooklyn, when you're applying to middle schools, you get a book on statuses and stuff, and I think this school is actually really high up in the statuses high up in the book of statuses. He was referring to the directory of schools, but of course he was speaking the truth. The presence of white kids and white parents brings a rise in one's place in all the books of statuses in this world. And status attracts status, right? Isn't that the progress game? I'm telling you all this because I think it's a present-day story about the damage that can be done by unsaved saviors like me. After Moses is saved in that little wicker ark in the bulrushes, bulrushes, he'll grow up to be used by God to save the Hebrew people from slavery. And from that point on in their history, every time Israel is told to recenter themselves on their true identity, they are told, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, but the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. Not remember when you were heroes or victors. 
Not when you rode into town and raised everyone's statuses. Remember that you were in need of salvation and it was provided. This is your deepest identity. Saved, not saviors. We still do so much unintentioned damage in this world when we live otherwise. I don't think there's a more pressing moral issue for Christians in America today than the issue of race. As a white man, I'll admit to feeling a lot of despair that there's any faithful way forward at all, at least for me. It can honestly feel like there is no right, untainted, non-racist next thing to do. It was so much easier when we thought racism was only about people who bomb churches or drive cars into protests, but we know that it's not. In fact, it may be more forcefully alive in the invisible motives and mindless actions of people just like me. People who want to use their privilege and power to do a little, to do good things, but still can't quite believe that I'm the one in this story who needs to be saved from my sins. But what if this despair that many white Christians are beginning to feel is actually the work of the Holy Spirit Because until we see ourselves first as enslaved and in need of a freedom we can't get for ourselves, we simply can't enter the redeeming stories of Scripture as anyone other than an oppressor. This is the explicit teaching and the deep deep structure of the Bible, from Moses to Esther to the prophets to Jesus to Paul. Until we see ourselves as helpless to save ourselves, we can't play our small part in God's saving work world. But the paradoxical good news is that if we can see ourselves as a people whose wills and loves and actions are utterly broken, deeply in need of a salvation only God can grant, well, this is precisely when we do enter the stories of Scripture. And maybe then, room enough can be made in our broken hearts for a Savior who is not us to enter them, alter them save them and the world around us from our sins. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.